0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. was re-elected in a landslide. Everyone was dancing to Thriller. Michael Jackson was so hot, he actually caught fire. America sat out the Summer Olympics in Russia, and every breath you take was on the radio every time you turned it on. Where's the Beef was the biggest commercial in the world. Bob Geldof, Band-Aid, Bernie Getz, crack and AIDS both made their first real appearance in the National Consciousness. And the Pulitzer Prize for Drama was awarded to Glengarry Glenn Ross by David Mamet because, hell yes, it was... Happy days went off the air, the Cosby Show made its debut, clearly the party of the late 70s and the early 80s was over, Indira Gandhi was assassinated, we also said goodbye to legends like Truman Capote, Marvin Gaye, Count Basie, and the great Francois Truffaut. But we also saw a U.S. woman walk in space, and to balance out all that loss and sorrow, we welcome folks including Kate McKinnon, Katy Perry, LeBron James, Scarlett Johansson, Mark Zuckerberg, and the late great Harris Whittles to the planet. Well, okay, maybe the Zuckerberg thing's not such a highlight. But the point was, there were highs, there were lows, and even when it felt like it was all about to blow up, the world spun on in 1984. Hi, everyone, I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to the year-end wrap-up for another season of 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? I'm Scott Weinberg, and I'm here to say 1984 is over. No rhyme. (laughs) that's all it's funny because this is the year I feel like an actual time traveler where I can like see it and smell it and taste it and touch it and the details are coming back now so vividly
1: 80 and 81 were very spotty memories I have vague memories of seeing Popeye I have vague memories of seeing Flash Gordon but when we talk about these movies I have
0: stories around seeing those movies so this next season is gonna be really fascinating for me and I'm happy that the movies are getting more interesting as we're getting to this point in the show. Like I think these years are more varied and richer and I don't know what your top ten list looks like. You don't know what mine looks like. I have no idea how the reader is gonna react. I'm already seeing people yell at me about movies that I know aren't on my <laughs> yep. list. So yep. it's gonna be it's gonna be fascinating.
1: Drew, let us do the top 10 biggest moneymakers of 1984. Number 10, a very amiable, very likable, they both mean the same thing, comedy called Splash. What's your name? It's hard to say in English. Well, just
0: say in your language. All right. My name is... And how much did it make?
1: Just under $70 million.
0: So so how much would that be? 69. Nice.
1: You, that's made, again,
0: me, you know, made me. I know. I know. me it against I, my will. I led you there. Um, one of the things that I love about these charts is that it reminds you that there was still a point this far into the decade where $69 million was enough to be in the top 10 for the year.
1: Right, right. I know that you and I agree that adjusted for current, you know, that all stuff, that's kind of specious and all. But- this is Ron Howard coming off night shift and you yeah. know if this movie had made half of 69 million nice they would have been happy with that so this was a not a smash but a surprise hit definitely it
0: also pointed the way forward for Disney i think if this movie had not done that business Touchstone might not have become the successful experiment it might not have led them into PG PG-13 realm and allowed filmmakers to stretch more it really is a good thing that this movie landed the way it did
1: all right, Drew, what is number nine clocking in at 76.4 million?
0: 76.4 million, a very respectable showing for Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. I think they had really proven Star Trek is a ongoing box office concern. And this will be a real franchise, and we're going to keep making these. And this was the one where they cemented that Star Trek Two was the surprise. This was no, we can do that every time out if we really focus.
1: They had gotten their confidence back after the over-expensive, over-long, and I still think underrated Star Trek One. Uh, but it seemed like they found their feet after Two it got a lot more confident. And yeah, in a way, Two,
0: Three, and Four play kind of like a three-episode arc. Well and they were smart they also got a lot cheaper they were they were much more economical they realized that if we make them for this number then there's room for that audience and Star Trek films were not meant to I, I think ever be the biggest giant thing going. they were always sort of like elevated TV and they worked best in that era where two, three and four kind of feel like really slick TV episodes.
1: another surprise hit squeaking in just above Star Trek 3 with 76.5 million. I'm romancing.
0: Nobody saw it coming, but man, oh man, did it make a mark. And uh, you talk about a movie that had to make money for whatever came next. This was it. This was the last shot for Robert Zemeckis, and I'm so glad that he connected because... God knows what the rest of that career would have looked like if we had not had this movie land the way it did.
1: What I like about it is that it just holds up as a fun, romantic adventure comedy. It's as fun today as it was when I was a kid.
0: And another film that I think still holds up and uh, is still fun: $80 million back then, which, man, that was a big movie. Footloose. Because every time he
1: pulls me in, I just want to kid. Let's hear it for the <laughs> schmear. <Ugh. laughs> I don't hate it, Twitter. I don't hate it. I just think it's very banal. I think it's, if this movie had never been made and somebody found the script, it would be sold to the Hallmark Channel. Uh, but a good handful of people have told me that I should give the remake a shot. Maybe I will.
0: Well, I hope they don't remake this next one, even though I am sure somebody's already working on it. Warner Brothers. What made $81 million that year, Scott?
1: <laughs> Police Academy.
0: What I remember first was my parents coming home from seeing it and being like, oh my God, and you can't see that, which immediately made it, well, of course I'm going to have to go see it now because you just said I can't. And it became a target where you had to go see it so that you could talk about the scenes that you weren't supposed to have seen and I think the blowjob podium scene is seriously one of those moments that sold tickets because you had to have seen it in order to know what the joke was. And then you were in a club. It's the Porky's rule of, you kind know, of is, you
1: know, it's like your, your comedy can be lazy in a lot of regards. But if you have one or two or three killer set pieces and then that's it, three now, four more people are going to go see it. And that's kind of what you had with Police Academy. I went to see definitely the first four in theaters. I had a decent enough time with the first one. I am not looking forward to revisiting the sequels, man.
0: I am not. It's coming. Uh, so here's what surprises me about our next one. I would have sworn that this number had to have been much higher. Ninety point eight four. The Karate Kid. Yeah. The best. The Inarguably phenomenal. A huge, huge movie at the time. The okay, so out of these... Which ones are still ongoing box office concerns? Star Trek, obviously. Uh, Footloose. They tried to do something recently.
1: So what you're saying is we haven't had a remake yet of Splash, Romancing the Stone, or Police Academy. That's basically what you're saying.
0: And thank goodness! Like I, I'm actually surprised that so many of these are still somewhat untouched, including our next one.
1: Number four, the first film to break not only the hundred million mark but the hundred and fifty million mark. From executive producer Steven Spielberg. From screenwriter Chris Columbus and director Joe Dante.
0: <music> God bless America for giving Joe Dante a $150 million hit in 1984. Um, it's the reason he kept working. And God damn, I'm happy Joe Dante had a hit that big at least once
1: boy did that guy deserve a big hit I I don't think that in 1984 they looked at it and went 153 million definitely
0: I don't think anybody did I think the numbers you see from here on out are all freak show numbers this next one of course they were hoping it was going to be a giant hit and it turns out that when they made Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom they did indeed end up earning 179.8 million dollars at the U.S. box office A masterful ad campaign, masterful release. It still has one of my very favorite teaser posters of the decade. But
1: why is it that, and I don't mean this as a knock, but I'm just curious, looking at the numbers for the next two, why wasn't it bigger than those two?
0: I think because it is such a dark, mean movie. I think it freaked people out. I know that my parents never went back and saw it a second time. I did, but they didn't. Whereas with Raiders... Everybody went back over and over. I do think uh, Temple of Doom is more divisive, and I think for good reason. It's it's definitely a really tough thing. Number
1: two and number one, I think it's safe to say, made, well, let's just say a large fraction of their money on repeat viewings. Because I know that, like Drew... I went to see Ghostbusters more than once.
0: Oh, many, many times. And it was a group activity. It was very easy over the course of that summer to just round everybody up and go see Ghostbusters. Drew, $229 200, 50 million more than Indiana Jones.
1: Right. Now, 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 that would be epic
0: today. Oh, yeah. That's a giant. That's <laughs> a sick number to make. And it's one of those. I think it warped the industry to a degree. I think that it's a formula that we have seen a lot of people try to figure out and crack and reverse engineer. And almost nobody has. I think Ghostbusters remains somewhat singular in the tone that it pulls off. And in the way it lands both the comedy and the horror. And it's one of the reasons that it remains a phenomenon. Lightning in a bottle, and it wasn't even the biggest hit. I know. Okay, so so this last one. This one beat it by how much Drew Only Five million, but that five million, as somebody pointed out this week, this was number one for four and a half months. Try to try to remember a time when movies were number one for four solid months. That's what happened with Beverly Hills Cop. I need a couple of bananas. How much are they?
1: Well, the buffet plate is $12.50. You get peaches, plums, oranges, and bananas.
0: All I need is a couple of bananas. Shh. Go
1: ahead. Take those bananas. Hey. Okay. <laughs>
0: This was the first year I went and saw movies over and over and over of my own free will and saw movies so many times that they just got kind of burned onto the hard drive. I did it with the Ghostbusters. I did it with Beverly Hills Cop. I did it with Terminator. I remember with Beverly Hills Cop, certain moments would come up and I would just start to kind of bounce a little bit because i was so excited oh good now he's gonna now it's the truck chase oh good now he's gonna do that oh good here comes this line and it was just seeing it and hearing people flip out around you and but it's
1: also like just listening to an album you like like oh here comes that that song i love
0: with the combined thing of hearing people react that's what was so great with beverly hills cop if you saw it next to somebody who hadn't seen it Oh my God, that was the best experience because you could turn and watch them for certain things and see them lose their minds. Man, I was 12 in 1984.
1: A year or two too young to really appreciate what I was getting. But man, it was like a playground for a
0: young movie nerd. The same thing is true. We're going to move on to the Oscars. And the same thing is true here. I think this is a embarrassingly good year.
1: Hey, you see these? They're the hottest tickets in this town. It's for the Academy Awards, and people will do anything to get one of these, even become a movie star. But you don't need one, you're with me, so come on. As far as picture goes, uh, the nominees were A Soldier's Story, Places in the Heart, A Passage to India, The Killing Fields, and Amadeus. And the winner for this
0: is Amadeus. You know, those aren't my necessarily five favorite films of the year. We'll get into those later. But as far as the Oscars and Best Picture nominees, every one of those makes sense. Every one of those, I can at least understand why they get nominated. Even Places in the Heart, which I think is a crazy film. I get it. Robert Benton carried so much weight and Sally Field's performance is so strong that I get why it's there. I get why it's in that group. And one of the farming movies was going to end up there, I think.
1: Uh, Drew. Thoughts on director?
0: The one thing that's different is there's one and this used to be the the trend is it would be largely the best picture nominees with maybe one difference. And the difference here, of course, is Woody Allen getting nominated for Broadway Danny Rose, which I don't get. Uh, this was the era where he started to be somewhat unassailable as an Oscar nominee. But it's black
1: and white, man, that's why best director, boom, black uh, and white.
0: Know, I know, but you want to talk about a mild effort from somebody who has definitely done much bigger work on either end of this film. So who was yeah? Who was omitted? Uh, Norman Jewison. And the winner is
1: Milos Foreman for Amadeus. All right, lead actor. Our nominees are Sam Waterston, Killing Fields, phenomenal. Tom Hulse, Amadeus. Great. Albert Finney, Under the Volcano. (laughs) Stunning. And we just lost Albert Finney last week. God bless him. I know. I know. Jeff Bridges, Starman. And the winner? The winner is F. Murray Abraham.
0: Obviously, for enormously selfish reasons that we talked about on the last episode, Uh, I was screaming at the television for Jeff Bridges to win. Like, it was all I wanted that year. And I think, you know, it was early confirmation that Bridges was a guy that Hollywood was going to always come back to. Because Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, there was the nomination. Starman, there was the nomination. Even when Bridges would go through sort of low periods, there would be those moments in the middle where you go, oh, yeah, they remember. He's out there. He's doing great work.
1: Yeah, he may vanish in some subpar movies uh, for a few years, but he'll pop back up at something great. And he always does. God bless The dude. Uh, All right, Drew, you want to take
0: Best Actress? So Sissy Spacek, Jessica Lange, and Sally Field all get nominated. Ultimately, that feels like a validation of the sort of race to make all three of those films and the competition to see whose film was going to be what. And at the very least, the work that those women did, which is terrific in every one of those movies. Love or hate those movies. Those three performances are straight up great. And I think the reason they all got nominated is because all three performances are ultimately about strength. And that is the kind of character that's somewhat undeniable to Oscar voters. They kind of can't help themselves. The reason I think Sally Field ultimately won is because they liked her. They really liked her. They really, really like her. But it's also I think she starts off more vulnerable and more broken than the other two and watching the strength assert itself is the ride in that movie and boy when it does she's something else so uh, the other two nominees were judy davis for passage to india which was a huge performance and a real announcement of who she was to american audiences and vanessa redgrave for the bostonians which is just a wicked lovely little piece of work supporting actor this one's all over the place.
1: Yeah, this is some really interesting ones here. John Malkovich replaces In the Heart. He's a true highlight in that. Wrong film, but great actor. <laughs> Adolf Caesar, a force of nature in uh, Soldier's Story. Yeah. Pat Morita, absolutely heroic and lovable in The Karate Kid. Yep. And Ralph Richardson as old British man
0: in Greystoke. <laughs> yes, as crazy old British man.
1: The winner is...
0: Hang S. Noor in the field
1: could not be more well deserved. I, absolutely stunning. The fact that it came from a relative non-actor makes it even more impressive. But I can't even imagine the emotional strength it takes to do that kind of performance. And
0: there's also a responsibility, I'm sure, when you've lived through something, and then you get an opportunity to portray it in some way on film. There's a responsibility to get it right for all the people that will never ever get a chance to tell their version of that story. And I think the work he does is is not just a tribute to his own strength and his own survival, but it is a love letter to every person who didn't survive.
1: Drew, take us through Best Supporting Actress.
0: This is one of those nominations where it came for a few scenes, but holy crap, I agree with Geraldine Page of the Pope of Greenwich oh, Village. Oh,
1: God, we talked about this in that episode. She
0: she's, is- a, she's a beast in that film, man. Ah. Uh, Christine Lottie in Swing Shift, which is a great performance in both versions of the movie that I've seen. And neither version of the movie is as strong as that work.
1: I got to assume that that was seen as a out of left field surprise. I mean, obviously, Christine Lottie in in several years would go on to show everybody. She was an amazing actor. But at that point, she's relatively unknown. And that must have just been like, a, who's that out of left
0: field nominee? Uh, Lindsay Krauss was nominated for Places in the Heart. Glenn Close, nominated for The Natural, that's one that mystifies me. I do not get that nomination.
1: Yeah, you're right. I absolutely love the movie, but... But that performance, really? Yeah, Um, not a lot of heavy lifting, yeah. (laughs) No. And the winner is... The winner is Peggy Ashcroft in A Passage to India. She has to represent, for the most part, the decency of the British, uh, of the colonizer... She may come from a culture that is ignorant and abusive, but this particular woman is kind and decent. She sells that instantaneously.
0: A big chunk of what I love about Passage to India comes from her interaction with him.
1: Oh, that first scene where they meet is. Their
0: their relationship is the thing that I will hold dear now that I know that movie. It's my favorite stuff in the movie. It's the the most interesting stuff. Clearly, the stuff that I think uh, Lean felt the most keenly in the movie. It's really, it's lovely. Best
1: original screenplay. This is interesting. Uh, Lau Gans, Bob Lou Mandel, and Bruce J. Friedman for Splash. That's great. Gregory Nava and Anna Thomas for El Norte.
0: Awesome. That is a surprise nominee. Now, uh,
1: this Woody Allen nominee, I do agree with. Broadway Danny Rose is a fantastic comedy screenplay. And I
0: don't get this one. Daniel Petrie for Beverly Hills Cop. This is a case where they're rewarding the screenplay that supposedly is the engine behind a movie. I think this is a crazy nomination because if you know the movie, you know that a large percentage of what happened was... Eddie Murphy came in and very quickly workshopped the version of that movie that got up on its feet and made all that money. So the nomination for the script is an odd choice.
1: The winner is Robert Benton for Places in the Heart.
0: Which uh, is just as weird as the Ruben Rubin nomination to me. I'm baffled. I think Places in the Heart is two movies. I would say, okay, half of this movie works really well. It's not even that the other half doesn't work. It's that I could lift it out and I could release it separately with a different title and it could be something else. If
1: you have a a B story that is completely modular and separatable, that's not a great screenplay. I'm sorry. El Norte you should have won this end of story. I have spoken. (laughs) Drew, why don't you take us through best screenplay adapted?
0: Okay. Wild Deer man. Soldier story by Charles Fuller. And that's a great nomination. The work they did in taking that play and opening it up as a movie It's invisible. I actually don't know what the play would have looked like, and that's a compliment. Uh, David Lean taking sole credit for Passage to India. Not exactly true, but okay. As an adaptation, he definitely signed that movie. Like, Forrester's book and Lean's version, you you learn a lot about David Lean from this adaptation. So I think that's a, a very fitting nomination. I think the Bruce Robinson script for The Killing Fields is awesome. Absolutely deserved. I am baffled that Greystoke got the nomination. I get the legend behind it, and I know that every writer in Hollywood was rewarding the legend of this screenplay, not the script.
1: I like the movie. I still don't agree with this nomination. I, I think the screenplay is decent. I don't think it's anything particularly... I think it's
0: terrific that an, a dog got an Oscar nomination. Oh, God. And is credited on the actual nomination, P.H. Vazic. So, yep. good for him. Yep. Woof, woof, good boy.
1: And the winner is... Peter Schaffer for Amadeus.
0: Like Soldier Story, really terrific work taking the play and making it work in a different way as a film. Uh, So let me ask you, what's your very favorite nomination out of all of these? Starman. Starman? Did I steal yours? No, not at all. I think my favorite nomination, though, that year was Pat Morita getting nominated for Karate Kid. Oh,
1: absolutely. I Again, it I was a long, long and several bong hits ago, so I cannot recall, but I can only imagine that me and my sister and my cousin were elated.
0: Yeah, Pat Morita getting nominated is one of those where you go, god damn right. Yes, that's perfect. We do this every year uh, when we get to this period, and I, I'm going to let you go first this year. I'm really curious. Out of all the movies we watched in 1984, is there a film that you feel most differently about now What is it and why?
1: I get Buckaroo Banzai a lot more now than I did when I was 15. Okay. And then not to say that there's a lot to get, and if you don't get it, then you're out of the loop or whatever. I don't think I got its kind of arcane irreverence.
0: Well, you may have been exposed to totally different like stuff now, just in terms of the influences and things. And... Yeah,
1: you know, back then I would have enjoyed it as a weird adventure comedy. Now I just get it as a, a pulp comic book entry.
0: I want to take this moment this year to address something that I think became a concern for a little while, and hopefully we're moving past it, because I, I really worry about this. Um, we are not here to scold you anybody for liking the things you like. And we're also not here to change your mind about liking the things. You oh
1: like. wait, unless it's Beatlemania or give my
0: regards to broad street. In which case, yes, you're a war criminal and you should be stopped.
1: I would have just gone with criminal, but okay. <laughs> but
0: I am not a middle-aged woke white guy. And I want to, I'm going to stop that because first of all, I'm not woke. I don't know what that means. And I'm not interested in performing for anyone or scoring points. I've been writing since 1994 online. This is stuff that I've been talking about as long as I have been working. Revenge of the Nerds mattered to me when I was young. I don't want to pretend it didn't. And that's something that I think people disconnect on. We're not pretending these things didn't matter to us or weren't important or weren't culturally significant. You know, when I was young, I moved all the time and it was always hard to reacclimate socially. And every move as I got older and I got nerdier, it got harder and I got angry about things. And so when I saw Revenge of the Nerds at 14, it really was important to me. It told me that my nerdiness had value. And I looked at that film and I only saw the things I wanted to see in it, nothing else. And I needed the last eight or nine minutes of that film, like actually needed it at 14. So I would never presume to come on a show and tell people you can't like something. I want this show to be about setting context. And I think the larger conversation about criticism these days misses that point. And Scott and I have, for two and a half years now as we've done this, I think done a really good job of examining our own feelings about these things. I love that sort of resonance that we have now, the ability to look back at how we reacted as a kid and to look at how we react now. I just hope as we move forward, it's all just about context and conversation. So for me, the the one that really surprised me this year was Revenge of the Nerds. This is the first time I've ever truly watched it and been sad. And that never happened before now. And I think it's because of the show but it doesn't mean you have to feel that way.
1: None of us are the same at 47 as we were at 17. That doesn't mean when you were 17, you were fun and and you could take a joke and now you're old and grumpy. And it also doesn't mean when you were 17, you were stupid and didn't give a shit about people and now you're woke
0: and responsible. I'm just not the same person. See, and I felt like I was this person at 14, but I laughed at these movies so clearly it was a different culture and a different time. And that cultural program Programming is fine to discuss why I don't think it's a bad thing to talk about any of this. I like talking about it.
1: Yes. The big difference is in 1984, we didn't ask ourselves, why is that joke funny or
0: not funny? Right. Nowadays we do. Well, you would ask if it was even a joke. Now you look at the first seasons of friends from the early nineties, they say the word lesbian and people start shrieking. Like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. It was still relatively new in mainstream comedy. So I think it's all on a continuum. That's all we're talking about. And I want everyone to, to feel invited to love what you love.
1: And you're more than welcome to disagree or agree with us. Now we're going to move into our top tens.
0: Yes. And I, and I preface that because you're going to get mad at us about our top tens. or at Oh, least you me, are, so. without
1: a doubt. And if uh, you <laughs> want to tweet us at 80s, at, at 80s all over with your top tens of the year, feel free.
0: What's the, what's the one film you think you're going to get yelled at for not putting on yours? Oh, God, dude.
1: Mm, Buckaroo Banzai, I guess. It's not all my...
0: I'm going to get yelled at for Ghostbusters, so it's fine.
1: What? Yeah. Wow. All right, Drew, why don't you start us off with your
0: number 10? I don't think this is going to shock anybody who's been listening this year, but my number 10 is John Carpenter's Starman.
1: It was one of those right on my cusp and one of the deciding factors in not putting Starman on my top 10
0: was, I knew you would. It was the rewatch. It was rewatching it this time and just realizing how simple it is, man. It is so stripped down. Every beat of its storytelling is exactly where it needs to be. You learn that he can bring things back to life at the right moment. One of my favorite scenes in any film from this year is the scene where he's, he brings the deer back to life. I think it's the shit beat out of him for doing so in the parking lot that the the way it's handled, the vi- just the visual way John handles the reveal is so much cooler than if he ladled all the music on and tried to make it like this moment of It's in the background through a window. And um, I think visually lovely, terrific score. One of my very favorite closing images of the year, and it's a year with some great closing images too. So, Yeah, Starman, awesome.
1: My number 10 is a comedy that I absolutely adore, and it is not an important film. It is not a particularly deep film, but I have seen it probably seven or eight times over the course of my life, including a theatrical run.
0: It's top secret. I'm so glad this is on your list because it's not on mine, and it made me very sad not to put it on my list. Freaking
1: passage to India, sorry. Killing Fields, sorry. Top Secret gets a spot. I can't help it.
0: I respect that it it is such an original it is such a weird thing even on their filmography top secret remains the weird ugly mutant cousin that nobody likes to acknowledge and that i love dearly it's dumb it is it is relentlessly dumb that somebody said i want to make a world war ii spy thriller that's also an elvis movie that's just dumb and after and somebody went oh you guys just made airplane here's a check All right, all right. so number nine for me is a film that you have already stated is not on your list. It did make my list. I was rattled, deeply rattled, by my revisit of The Killing Fields. What a movie. What a great testament to how hard the job of journalism is emotionally.
1: It's also eminently watchable. I don't want to say entertaining, but captivating. It is absolutely engrossing and... Uh, I'm very glad for the show because I don't know without us doing this show if I ever would have just not gotten around to watching it.
0: It is relentlessly demanding of you, but at the same time, it's not a chore. And man, I I didn't know how great Sam Watterson really is. It's one of those things you just kind of accept that He's always been very good. This is a reminder. He was occasionally great.
1: Number nine, I'm going to skip through because I'm sure you have it up
0: higher. It's Temple of Doom. I do not have it on my list. What? Temple of Doom is not on my list. Ladies and gentlemen, wait a second. Okay, so this is crazy. I am the one who likes Temple of Doom more. Yep. It is not on my top ten list. It is on yours. Yep. (laughs) That is such a weird... This show is the weirdest fucking show I've ever been part of. I think I know why.
1: Clearly my love for the good stuff vastly outweighs my disdain for the Well it's
0: it's great. I would not argue at all with it being on a list. Er, Vespi's is going to lose his mind when he This is it. so funny. He's going to flip. He's going to first of all yell at me. I know that, but yeah, no, that's great. Oh,
1: well, I get to be an unwitting hero. That's great. No, I'm glad. <laughs> Give it up um, for Temple of Doom. I like it more than you thought I did, and more maybe more than I thought I did.
0: I am so happy to see that on your list. I'm curious if number eight, is for me, is anywhere near your list. It is a movie that many people now have reached out to us and said that they watched because of the episode we did. I'm so excited people are discovering Alan Parker's Birdie.
1: The Nicolas Cage film shot in Philadelphia with the Peter Gabriel score? Yeah, yeah. I, might be on, I don't know if that's on my list or not. I don't know. It might be. Okay, well, it's a good film. We might talk about it again. It is a good motion picture. I'm yeah. going uh, to move to my number eight, which is one of the best uh, movies about gangsters and generations of crime. It's Once Upon a Time in America.
0: Ooh, not on my list.
1: Yeah, good, good. I like that. I, yeah,
0: very good movie. Very good movie.
1: I, I still think that it might be a tad on the indulgent side, that it might have been better with a bit less sprawl, but- you don't complain about Sergio Leone's final film if you love it. You just love it. And I do. I, I I love
0: it. It's a giant meal. It always leaves me feeling a little bit overdone. I get to the end of it and I'm like, I could have stopped 45 minutes ago. And I think that's probably for me why it didn't make the list. It's really the only one of his big movies that I can't just watch anytime. Um, what's weird is if you had asked me before this year, which of the two I liked more, this or Coppola's cotton club, I would have easily said this. I think if I were just going to put one on to watch, I'd probably put on cotton club. Wow. That's interesting. I loved, I, I respect it, but I think I'd put on cotton club to enjoy Fair enough. What's your number seven then? Stop making sense. No, you. I love, love, love this movie. I think it is a pure experience as a film. And if you get a chance to see it in a theater with other people, good Lord, jump at that opportunity.
1: Yeah, like I said before, the the biggest praise that I can give this movie is that I've always considered myself a fan. I don't think I've ever bought any of their albums, but if there's a talking head song on the radio, odds are it's one I like. I could have watched another two hours of this film. Even if you have never heard any of their big hits, it's just an inviting concert experience it really is you know what else is a thrilling experience drew
0: i'm gonna assume your number seven
1: is me not being afraid of no ghosts because i love ghostbusters even though to me it is like the cinematic 80s version of stairway to heaven you've heard those notes in that order so many times that it almost sounds like elevator music and that's not the song's fault
0: well there's there is culture that we overdigest and It's not the film's fault. It's never the film's fault.
1: And I just think it still holds up as a rock solid ensemble piece. It has horror and comedy. That is my crack cocaine. It deserves all the praise it got. And it is a pop culture juggernaut. And I adore it.
0: I love Ghostbusters. I've talked about how I think Ghostbusters is miraculous because it's held together with spit and band-aids. And it's just nuts that that's even a movie that works, much less is as good as it is. But there's a part of me that, as a writer, gets irritated with that. I love Dan's original screenplay. I love the the various drafts of it. I love all the weird things he tried. But for me, Ghostbusters is a great movie that came from chaos. Whereas sometimes, for me, the value is when there's a screenplay that is so fucking great and just so right on the page, and then somebody gets hold of it and executes it perfectly. And that is why I dearly love my number six film, Romancing the Stone.
1: Oh, beautiful. Just missed mine.
0: And it's just, it's that script. I think that's, I think Joan Wilder is a great character. I think making her the center of the movie is great. Making her a romance novelist who is essentially agoraphobic and doesn't go out into the world and is afraid of experience, who then gets forced into the realist experience she can have. That's a terrific character anyway. And there's so many ways to make it like too broad or make her too brittle. But it's Kathleen Turner then when you cast her in that character. What a great combination. It's one of those examples of everything was right. Zemeckis was ready. The script was there. Douglas recognized what it was and Turner couldn't have been better. And then they had Danny DeVito just shred.
1: People walked out of that theater smiling. Didn't reinvent anything. It was just a good romantic adventure. It's not rocket science, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what else is not rocket science, Drew? What? A great horror film. And I came up with one for my number six. Let us briefly discuss the masterpiece that is Wesley Craven's. The Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Very nice. Didn't make my list.
1: And I wrestled with it, man. I really wrestled with it. Well, you knew it was going to be on mine. My only question was how high. Overall, not a stunning year for horror, but this is one of the best. So, of course, it made my uh, top 10. None of the sequels will. I do have an affection for part three, but not top
0: 10 worthy. It's such a wonderful thing. And for Wes, it is the moment where I feel like His work, especially his early work, is so ragged and so raw. I had a picture of Wes Craven in my head when I saw those movies when I was young of who he was and what he was. And then years and years later, I got to meet him and I got to be around him a little bit and we got to chat and and God, he was just the most educated, erudite, cultured, witty wonderful like weirdo the, your
1: favorite college professor or high school teacher the one who was ridiculously smart
0: but also very gracious and kind and you knew he'd read everything twice so for me nightmare is the movie where the two west cravens finally kind of crossed perfectly because it's got this really heady brilliant concept when you leave the theater and you go home you don't have to be afraid of jason because you're not going to the woods to sleep in a cabin you do have to be afraid of going to sleep that was brilliant it was so smart and i think it's the moment where wes finally got to be all of wes I, and
1: i think what's fun and and great about the, the late west craven is that he made some really silly stuff too shocker deadly friend kind of silly and and that's why i think he has so many fans Oh why. yeah,
0: we're gonna talk deadly friend when we get there man
1: all right yeah all right so drew what's your number five
0: this is spinal tap
1: oh that's a good comedy let's just go right past that let's hold up uh okay. my number five is a film we briefly discussed already and it is alan parker's birdie drew what is it about this movie that st- struck you this time i know if i had said to you a month ago What do you think of Alan Parker's Birdie? What would your memory have told you?
0: My memory was mainly the growing up stuff. What I love now is I love the ticking clock that is in place. And that friendship and the lengths that he'll go to and the importance of just getting a word, a human sound out of Birdie is a great spine for the film.
1: What I love about it is that it's about The sincerity of friendship among young people, even after they've been through horrible things like you would expect that after the tragedies and the horrors that they've seen, that they might be completely inured to friendship or warmth of any kind.
0: I think it also, though, speaks to the urgency of why that matters. Why? Because that person knows you. That person is the the thing that remembers the real you before you were damaged or broken. Nobody else remembers Bertie the way he does.
1: Please, if you've not seen Birdie, add it to your queue and let us know what you
0: think of it. Drew, so good. What is your number four? It's the Terminator. I'm so excited <laughs> that I got to put this on a list. Finally,
1: it's not on my list, but it was a clerical error and literally just omitted it from my master list. It would have been in my top five. So uh, that so means- perfect.
0: So we'll get to talk about it here. It's my favorite low budget movie of all time. The Terminator feels like what anybody else would now do with a hundred million dollars. The Terminator is raw talent, pure storytelling ability, just 100% in service of this perfect little script.
1: I believe I'm a moron that I cannot believe I looked at my top 10 and didn't, even though we cover 300 movies an episode that I didn't have this in my list. I'm just, I feel like a moron, but then again, we wouldn't have been able to include top secret. So moving on. There we go. Uh, My number four is a film we have discussed frequently. This will sound like a Scott wants to be artsy pick, but it is not. I guarantee if you've never seen it, you will have a ball with Amadeus.
0: We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a minute. No, really? All right. So what's your number three then? My number three is, um, I don't know if this is the first time I've had a documentary make my list. Pretty sure. Stop making sense is a documentary too. Oh, okay. So second time this year that a documentary has made my list uh, is the terrific, memorable, heartbreaking, The Times of Harvey Milk. Good call. It's a great movie about everything. And Harvey is such a phenomenal character, such a great American character. And to me, Harvey is what America at its best can look like. He's a guy who figured the game out and was ready to beat the system on its own terms um, he wasn't just a radical. He was a radical who knew how the system worked and was willing to get into it to fix it. When you are a smart radical who actually cares about other people. Well, that's, that's what his radical nature was, was kindness. He believed in everybody having a voice in San Francisco and then hopefully down the road in a larger government that he would have been part of.
1: Beautiful documentary. Good call, Drew. Uh, my number three. Yes, I like this considerably more than Ghostbusters, I'm sorry to say, but it is another horror-comedy combo.
0: The Wonderful Gremlins. Nice. Dan Feinberg, my old friend from HitFix, just yelled at us on Twitter that we both better have this at number one. Um, He's going to be very relieved you have it on your list because I don't. Oh my
1: God, well, he's going to... Some of the people are going to lose their mind.
0: Look, I love Gremlins. I I absolutely do. I just love 10 other films a little bit more, so... I I can't believe that you think... Oh my god! Fourteen-year-old me would be screaming at me just like everybody else. Fourteen-year-old me would look at this list and get actively angry at several spots on it. But
1: would it? Would you? Would fourteen-year-old you go on Reddit and tell everyone that you're a fucking? Never mind. I'm not
0: yes, here. he yes he would. Yeah, I'm <laughs> really glad fourteen-year-old me didn't have the internet.
1: All right, Drew. Let's move on. My number three is the Gremlins. If you've never seen it, come on, people, wait.
0: <sighs> it's and, and terrific and iconic and. Playful and weird, and and that's another thing that I I dearly value about that movie is it's a really weird hit. Sure, what's your number two? My number two is Amadeus, and uh, what a rich piece of entertainment! This is one of those movies that uh, was a sort of milestone for me in realizing that you could be entertained in ways other than the sensation. And it it was the fact that this movie was just so, so dense and so ambitious and so alive.
1: Milos Forman and later Stephen Frears, these were guys who were steeped in the classics, but were really intent on making them accessible. Like the most impressive period piece or costume drama is not all that impressive if you can't relate to the humanity or the character on the screen. And boy, can you in Amadeus. Nobody feels like
0: 300-year-old ancient no they feel like flesh and blood (laughs) well and it does feel like the world continues past the edge of the frame like these people are living in this world not dressed up in costumes for the scene and it's a huge difference for me most costume dramas never make the jump i also think what it says about art and about creation and about how we feel amadeus in the social media age should be a powerful parable that we all pay attention to. As you look online and you worry about what other people are doing and that this person is brilliant and this person has this amazing life and this person is where you aren't and they've done more than you have, don't be Salieri. Don't buy into it. Don't get hooked on this feeling that you have to compete with anybody but yourself when you create. And I think this movie is genius at saying that.
1: Which of us is Mozart and which of us is Salieri?
0: Uh Well, Bobby's Mozart, so... I'm I'm Stanzi. Have you seen me in a gown? I am Stanzi, dude. All right. I'm just gonna
1: pull off the band-aid and I'm not gonna apologize. My number two is my number one favorite fable about baseball, Barry Levinson's The Natural.
0: Beautiful movie.
1: I absolutely love every frame of it. I get that some people think it's facile and and kind of empty headed. It just feels like a storybook for uh the 14 year old me who loved baseball, wasn't very good, but like to play it, like to watch it uh, in person or on television. It harkens back to an origin of baseball that most of it didn't exist. It's all, it's very much a fairy tale, but it's such a rich mahogany uh, brandy snifter fairy tale. And I love the score. I love the cast. I love The Natural.
0: I was never in love with baseball when I was younger. So I think The Natural was not one that landed for me. I really didn't fall in love with baseball until I watched my kid play it. And then I kind of love the game. And then we started watching pro ball and I, I kind of love baseball now. But it's one of those things that I, I think the natural worked for me when I was younger as a big, beautiful myth. And I understood that side of it and I liked that side of it and respect it. I think you do have to have that reverence and love for it to maybe have that extra added meaning because I know a lot of people that are crazy about baseball and The Natural is a movie that's very important to them.
1: I wouldn't say it's my very it's my favorite fictional baseball movie. Uh we will soon get to a John Sayles film that is my very
0: favorite movie about baseball. I, I might be and I might be with you on that. I one, cannot
1: yeah. wait to revisit Eight Men Out. Drew, what is your number 1 film of 1984?
0: I- I, man, I, I've never worked harder on a top 10 list than I did on this one. Not on any of the years that I covered at HitFix. This this was a killer. And, and there are a lot of movies that I love that are part of my DNA that did not make the list. Beverly Hills Cop did not make this list. Gremlins didn't make this list. Ghostbusters didn't make this list. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai didn't make this list. A ton of movies that are foundational movies for me didn't. But there's a movie that when we watched it this time through uh, 1984, man, it, it got under my skin deeply, and I love it, and I have loved it since I first saw it, but I didn't know how much Paris, Texas meant to me. It's one of the great films, I think, about fatherhood and about responsibility to somebody you brought into this world and about how fragile a connection that is and about how hard it is to get right. And I Stanton is amazing in that film just that final sequence in that movie between Stanton and Natasha Kinski, The it's not the final scene, but the one where they finally talk and he finally tells her who he is and it's on the opposite sides of the glass and they're just going through the phone. Uh, it's one of the greatest scenes of the 80s. It's one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen. It, it's everything I love about acting. It's everything I love about filmmaking. It's just an amazing movie with one of the great child performances of all time. And Harry Dean Stanton is as good as film acting gets in there. How about you, man? Because I, I know they're not the same. The only thing Bobby told us is that we didn't have the same. And so now that we've gone through and I've looked at everything we've talked about, which is like 17 movies, I I have no idea what yours could be.
1: Our eagle-eared viewers will be able to notice because I glanced right past it, but my number one film on my top 10, and I really wish our top 10s went to 11, Because my number one is this is Spinal Tap.
0: Oh, oh, amazing. Great
1: choice. (laughs) Yep. At this point in my life, movies were 90% like fun or refuge from misery. And I didn't really get music documentaries back then. But I got improv comedy and I got Saturday Night Live and I got that these guys were comedians playing rock stars and really convincingly but very goofily. Now, as an adult who has seen dozens and dozens of music documentaries, I love this movie even more. The, I
0: love it's it. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's brilliant. It almost does it a disservice just to call it a comedy. Like, it's, hey, Spinal Tap, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's also revolutionary. It's also uh, genre-breaking. It's also brilliantly constructed it's also unbelievably well performed um and largely improvised which is mind-boggling
1: you made a good point that in some ways this is uh the blair witch of comedies because there of course there were you know mockumentaries or fake documentaries in the past but not to this excellence not to this degree of of brilliance there's so much um uh, awareness these guys know these rock stars this is not just let's make fun of the drummer let's make fun they know these guys in and out yeah that's what makes it funny they're not
0: just riffing on what rock stars might be like it's a super dense parody a super dense comedy in terms of character construction and improv more than that though watching it this time through i am really moved by how it's a Statement about getting older in an industry that is completely and utterly enslaved by youth. These guys are at the end of things. Spinal Tap's already well past their sell-by date at the beginning of this film.
1: See, you know, I didn't get that. As a kid, I didn't get that.
0: Uh, No, I didn't either. But you look at it now, and they're older than they should be. They're older than rock stars
1: Right. As a kid, you're like, yeah, they're not exactly young, but they're rock stars. As an adult, you're like, yeah, they're like four years too old.
0: (laughs) Well, and a lot of the comedy is that they are definitely not getting the gigs that they thought they were going to. They're not getting the bookings. They can't get the places to play. A lot of that stuff is you get that it's bad for them when you're a kid. You don't get the fear and the desperation that's driving a lot of the humor here. It's a really human film and a very, very deep character piece in terms of how well they play it the breakup between them is very real and the end of it where they finally play together on stage again it's very emotional and it lands
1: yep it is very sweet
0: and it's one of those movies here's how you know it's honest every musician who has ever talked about it is like holy shit it's not even a joke it's real that scene where they get lost backstage every rock star has that story every rock star has been at a venue where you couldn't find the stage. It's become foundational text. Every rock star knows Spinal Tap as just language. Like It is part of the the fabric of being a rock star now. So nobody has ever, I think, nailed it as hard as they did or ever will. And it's funny, Bobby has one on his top 10 that is like your moment with The Terminator. I thought about it. I wrestled with it. And it still fucking bugs me that I don't have it on my list. Uh, his, just to run through them, Gremlins, and number 10, Repo Man, which is the one that I uh, kick myself for not having on my list, and number nine, number eight is The Karate Kid, number seven, A Soldier's Story, number six, Nightmare on Elm Street, number five, This Is Spinal Tap, number four, The Killing Fields, number three, The Terminator, number two, Ghostbusters, and number one, Amadeus. Which, honestly, if you had asked me to guess before either of us sat down to do our list, Scott, I would have guessed we both had Amadeus at number one. I thought from our conversation during the show, I thought for sure it was going to end up there.
1: I want to echo Drew's praise for both El Norte and Paris, Texas, both excellent films uh, that are as timely today as they ever were. Uh, All of me. Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin, one of the best comedies well of the year. Well worth seeing,
0: yeah.
1: Um, also, one of the best comedies of the year, Moscow on the Hudson, early Robin Williams. Uh, love, Buckaroo Banzai, and the little discussed but very
0: interesting Iceman. It was a good year, man. I am delighted to have wrapped up another season of the show. Again, thank you to everybody who supports the show on Patreon or who supports the show on Twitter or who has taken the time to comment on the show or give us feedback. More than anything, though, I feel like you guys, week after week, you show up and you give us feedback and you are interactive with the show. And clearly, um, that is the purpose of it. And it feels like it's just getting going. We got another half of this to do, and it's going to be even more exciting. And I can't wait. And Scott, this was... My favorite best of episode so far because that was a wild top ten ride, man. That was none of what I expected.
1: Yeah, aside from me somehow omitting one of my very favorite movies of the year <laughs> that I <laughs> you literally did that last <laughs> year.
0: You did that with the Evil Dead 2. Yeah, so. but uh,
1: yeah, but with Evil Dead, I had the excuse of that that yeah, release year discrepancy and all that. Eighty one verse eighty. Oh.
0: It's fine. You love the Terminator. We know you love the Terminator.
1: Yes, I want that on the record.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) All right. Thank you to every listener, every patron, every tweeter. Uh, If you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be great. And uh, that's it. We'll see you in January of 85, which is a train
0: wreck, but it'll be fun. How do you start a new year? How about a sequel to a movie from last January? How about another movie made up of leftover parts from other movies? Hey, I got it. How about a monster in a toilet? Holy hell, it sounds like we're in for it. We'll see you back here in two weeks for January of 1985.